Welcome to Nature Now, an original production by KPTZ volunteers. Nature Now is a program of information and insights about the natural history of our region. We welcome observations and suggestions from our listeners. Care of Nature Now at kptz.org. Hello, and welcome to Nature Now. I'm your host, Nan Evans, and my guest this week is Kathleen Dean Moore. So Kathleen Dean Moore is a philosopher, an environmental advocate, and an award-winning nature writer. She's also the Distinguished Philosophy Professor Emerita at Oregon State University, and she has home bases in two wonderful places that I dearly love. One is Corvallis, Oregon, and another is a cabin somewhere in the magical southeastern part of Alaska. I have been reading and treasuring her writing for a number of years, I find her books just celebrate our natural world. They sort of help guide the reader through many of the difficult life questions. And I wholeheartedly recommend her most recent books. The first one is Earth's Wild Music, Celebrating and Defending the Songs of the Natural World, and Take Heart, Encouragement for Earth's Weary Lovers. So welcome, Kathleen. We're so glad to have you here from Corvallis via Zoom on Nature Now. Thank you, Nan. I'm so pleased to be with you. And by further way of introduction, I'd like to share a short clip. It's a reading by the poet Jane Hirschfield, and it's a piece titled Albatross from Kathleen's book, Earth's Wild Music. And the music is performed by pianist Rochelle McCabe. Listen, the albatross is whispering to her egg on the nest, her long beak tracked with white trails of the salty tears she has shed, reaches down to touch the shell that holds her child. Small sounds, whistle tick, mumble. Surely the blind curled chick hears his mother. Does the mother albatross pray, a woman asks. May seas be kind, may anchovies be plentiful, may winds be steady under your wings. Does she promise, asks another. I will nudge you into the sweet feathers of my chest and sing to you a whistling song. 
until you fly from me forever. I will keep you safe and defend you steadfastly. A third woman asks, does the albatross in her sorrowful wisdom warn the chick? Soon you will spread your wings and soar into a world gone suddenly cruel, the winds ferocious and crosswise, the sea currents confused, the fishermen desperate, the sun hot on the seas. The ocean will offer objects that will not nourish you. Cigarette lighter, toothbrush, bottle cap, button, bread bag, baited hook, dolls, severed arm. But sardines and bloodied herring torn by feeding whales will be few. You will be hungry. Does she say that? Does she silently weep? So Kathleen, it's really most unusual for nature now to have a philosopher as a guest. And then I, I had to pause and think, well, maybe unless many of us are philosophers because we think about ideas or ask questions about ideas. But the first real philosopher we've ever had. <laughs> so to, to start with, I'd like to just kind of ask you, as you view the world as a philosopher, what questions and perspectives do you bring to your observations and your inquiries? Well, Nan, I, I just want to say thank you for inviting me, an oddity for sure, a philosopher in the flesh. Um, <laughs> honestly, there is no faster way to end a conversation than to say I am a philosopher. But um, just the way biologists study life and ornithologists study birds, philosophers study ideas. They study these foundational ideas that describe how we live with each other and with the planet. So basically, philosophers ask three foundational questions about the world, and the answers to those make up their worldview. Number one, what is the world? Number two, what is the place of humans in the world? Number three, how then shall we live? Well, we're at this incredible, exciting time at this hinge point in history where it's obvious that the answers to those questions that we've lived with for centuries are not only wrong, but they're disastrous. So we live in this great rush of new ideas about how we might define the world and our, and our role in it. We know it will no longer do to say, what is the world? Well, the world is dead matter. It's inanimate. Mm -hmm. Spirit, it is just this stuff created for our use, stuff for us to take and use, and its only value is its value to us. And it won't do anymore to say human beings, well, we're the apex of creation. We're separate from the world. We are superior to the natural world. We are the rulers of the world. And we are by nature selfish. And so through competition and extraction, we accumulate wealth, which is the key to happiness. That won't do anymore. And it won't do anymore to say, then how shall we live? If the answer is gonna be without restraint, without gratitude. Or as but, we've lived for eons, centuries anyway. So that's what I mean, that this kind of, that this old fashioned worldview, this 
passé worldview, this disastrous worldview, is what's given us the moral license for wreck and pillage. And it's these set of philosophical ideas that underpin the drive of civilization towards the edge of collapse. But as I say, all that is changing. Yeah, that's that's exciting to, to think about. It's actually terrifying to think about the kinds of changes that, to what we think we know. And it's exciting at the same time. You mentioned beauty, and certainly in the Earthwild music, you paint a number of vignettes of absolutely incredible beauty. And it's beauty in the face of what we now recognize as the sixth, sixth extinction. Uh, the, the little bit about the albatross was, was an example of that. Many of us, of course, have been reading about this accelerating loss of species and you know reading the reports and sometimes I find the the reports just too overwhelming and too ominous and I can't can't remember some of the key takeaways other than just kind of the overall it looks dismal and um, the Earthwild music you told of these losses in a way that I just found really powerful can you share with listeners what has happened since the year 1970 and I must admit, I remember that year well, and I'm fairly certain a fair number of our listeners do do as well. Well, right, 1970 was the year of the uh, great new legislation about mm-hmm. the Environmental Protection Agency. It was the year of the first Earth Day. Mm-hmm. We all remember that and how hopeful and excited we were. But um, as you say, no one wants to say this, and it has to be said, and, and no one wants to hear this, but it has to be heard that we're grinding this earth toward the sixth extinction. And we're rapidly approaching the forces of extinction. The forces of extraction are rapidly approaching the ferocity of the asteroid that took out three quarters of the species on the planet. And that was the fifth extinction. That that was the fifth extinction. And we hit into the sixth. So already in the last 50 years, okay, since 1970, in our lifetimes, on our watch, The world has lost 60% of its mammals, individuals, not species. But the total population of North American songbirds, the wrens and the robins, has been cut by a third. Half of the grassland birds have been lost, gone without the meadows and the prairies. When have you last heard a meadowlark sing? I'm not sure I've ever heard a meadowlark sing. And I know it was the state bird of Oregon, and I lived in Oregon for a, a number of years, and I never heard it. Half of them are gone. And three quarters of our migrating shorebirds are gone. That will speak to people in Fort Townsend. Mm-hmm. Three, quarters. three quarters of the migrating shorebirds. 28% of many migrating shorebirds. They're gone. And now, the terrifying thing, I just heard this today, the scientists are sounding the alarm because they're finding pockets of extinction, where 98% of the songbirds are gone. (sighs) Unimaginable. That's the thing that as as their habitats disappear, those wild things disappear too. And we have to remember that actually, (laughs) I've got that wrong. Habitats don't disappear. Habitats are destroyed. And creatures don't disappear. They suffer and die. They die so quietly, we hardly know they're gone. You know, I, I tell people that my grandchildren are going to be able to tear out half the pages in their field guides. Half the pages in their field guides. They won't need them anymore. Unimaginable in our that's, lifetimes. That's unimaginable, and yet it's so 
it's so visual. I cherish my field guides and to realize that they're going to be obsolete, essentially. You think about how long it's taken birdsong, for example, to evolve. That's 60 million years those birds have been reaching this peak of beauty. How long has it taken us to kill half of them? 50 years. Unbelievable that in our lifetimes we're destroying what it has taken 60 million years to evolve. Wow. And as you say, that's happened in the amount of time many of us can remember the last 50 years. Children and grandchildren won't know the chorus of bird songs or the, the sounds of the earth or the sounds of... <laughs> Ecologists call that the sliding ecological baseline, that as the world becomes simpler and more impoverished, uglier, we take that as the norm. We mm-hmm. assume that's the way it, it has been. It always has been. What goes along with that, I would point out, is a sliding baseline of imagination, where even our imagination or a sense of possibilities is shrunken. And that, I think, leads to this uh, sliding baseline of hope, where we don't even know what to hope for. Because our sense of what ought to be, our sense of what might be again, or what has been, is shrunken and impoverished. But, you know, I I just wanted to add that a note of of hope here, because I think that the worldview around us is changing. And what I see, I'm calling it, I think it's such a big thing at this hinge point in history that I'm calling it the Great Convergence, where philosophy and ecology and indigenous thought and almost all of the religions of the world are coming together into a new worldview. It's a beautiful worldview. It's not new necessarily, maybe a rediscovery of an old one, that the world is animate, it is inspirited, it is beautiful, it is astonishing, it is irreplaceable. You know, when I think about beauty, I think about it gives us such joy. And you're also the link to the notion of imagination. It sort of allows imagination to soar. I'm curious, do you have a perspective on why it does that? Or what, what happens when we don't have that kind of joy? Yeah. You know, we love the world because it's beautiful. We love yeah. it. Yeah. We, we, we love it because it is life-giving. Our world depends on Our lives depend on it. And, and as I say, it is beautiful. It is astonishing. It is irreplaceable. It's mysterious beyond imagining. Mm-hmm. It is awesome in the literal sense of combination of fear and beauty. And we might just think about whether or not the good English word for that combination of characteristics is sacred. And if so, Mm. then I don't think we should be afraid to use that word. We walk out of our houses in the morning into the sacred morning and we walk on the sacred grass and we listen to the sacred bird song. I'm willing to use that language. I also don't use the word sacred hardly ever. But encompassing that in the sort of appreciation of the world, I like that notion. I am going to try to weave that into my daily experiences using the world sacred when I open the door and walk out into the dug furs around my house or along the beach. So thank you. That's, that's, that's quite a gift. Sacred is an amazingly powerful word. And, you know, we use it in interesting ways. Sacrifice, vice to make, To make sacred, when we make a sacrifice, we make something sacred, we honor it. Mm -hmm. And more than that, more important than that is this word sacrilege. It comes from the word legare, which means to steal. 
So as extractive industry or human recklessness and greed are destroying the world, it's a sacrilege. It is a theft of sacred things. So that, I think, takes us directly to some the kind of moral and ethical questions. And I think we probably all want to see ourselves as moral and ethical people. We were just talking about being in the middle of the sixth extinction, um, a dying world. Can a dying world be beautiful? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is any less beautiful because it's in peril. It's the opposite. It becomes more beautiful as each day goes on and we love it more and more. So we have to live with these conflicting emotions of, of joyful gratitude for this world and grieving at its losses. How can we find beauty in a, in a world that is so tattered and torn and imperiled? I think that we can learn to be joyfully grateful and grieving at the same time. You know, grief, I think, is something that we should welcome into our lives. Honest grief. Uh, great grief comes only to people who care greatly. If you had no love for the world, you wouldn't grieve its passing. But grief is the measure of the magnitude of the loss. Grief is an affirmation of the meaning of ongoing life. It's a declaration of unending love. Grief is a ceremony of honoring. It's a howling yes. So I think that we should be grateful for grief in a kind of a paradoxical way. It's a necessary gift. Grief teaches us three things, I would say. That we love the world, that it's worthy of our love, and that our love requires us to act in its defense. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, as a philosopher, we love to make distinctions, and I think there's a really, really important distinction between grief on the one hand and despair. Despair, I think we should refuse. We should turn our back on despair. We should lock it out of our lives. And and what's the difference? Here, here's the difference. The grief is a measure of the magnificence of meaning and a reason for acting to protect what we're losing. Grief is a way of saying, I love this. It matters. It means something. Despair, on the other hand, denies all meaning. It denies that anything is worthy of protection. Nothing is worth defending. Nothing is worth caring about. It's all meaningless. That's extraordinarily dangerous. Hmm. So yes, embrace grief because it acknowledges the meaning and the worth of our surroundings. Deny despair because despair turns us away from any meaningful action. I certainly find personally it's kind of it's a struggle to keep from not sliding into despair and to be conscious of, of not going there. It takes, takes energy and awareness. Yes, it does. It takes energy. It takes awareness, as you say. It takes work, and it takes action. Is the only remedy I know of for despair is to act. So Kathleen, you have pointed us to some really valuable observations about the distinction between grief and despair. That also brings us to sort of look at the subject of hope, hope and despair. 
sort of as a philosopher looking at our world today, how do you think about that? I see people saying that we have an alternative, we have a choice, we can choose hope or we can choose despair. And these are presented to us as the only alternatives. Mm-hmm. So if we despair, we say everything is going to go to ruin. There's nothing I can do that'll make a difference. So I won't do anything. That's a kind of moral abdication. Then, on the other hand, here's hope. Hope says everything's going to be all right, no matter what I do. So I don't need to do anything, which is also a kind of moral abdication. Either way, I don't feel called to act, but that's a fallacy because it's not an either or. Actually, between hope and despair is this broad moral ground that we call moral integrity. And what I would say about hope and despair is to point out that we don't act in defense of the world because we can, we, we are sure we can win this one. You know, we have to acknowledge the possibility that the planet has reached the point of no return. Nevertheless, we act, we do our absolute best because it's the right thing to do. And that's moral integrity is, is finding that. Right. So people, of, people with moral integrity do what they think is right, regardless of what they think the consequences are going to be. They act lovingly toward the earth because they love it. They live simply because they don't believe in taking more than their fair share. And people of integrity protect children because that's the duty of all adults, regardless of the consequences. And they protect the earth because they aren't the kind of people who wreck a place before they leave it. So the point is, even if we're not sure that what we can do will make a difference, we still have a moral obligation, a very strong, incontrovertible duty to do what we can to help the earth thrive and to create the climate justice that that thriving makes a home for. Um, Maybe it's not going to do any good, but still we fulfill our our role as moral beings by doing what we think is right. So we could give up on hope. We could renounce despair and still find a place to act, a good, solid, moral foundation for acting. I'm finding listening to you just lifts a burden off my sort of heart and shoulders because it's so easy to kind of get yourself tied up in a knot with despair, hope, what's the chance of success? And the way you talk about it, it just goes, oh, well, of course. We all think of ourselves as having moral integrity. Then act on that. Yeah. And there's another point that I would make in that regard. And that is that um, people talk as if this climate war I don't like that language, is an all or nothing thing. As if at some point we're going to win this one or at some point we're going to lose it. But it isn't like that at all. We should save what we can in order to have a decent chance uh, for a beautiful, thriving world. So I think that it's very clear that we're doing this work because we're not doomed as long as we act. There's always that phrase, as long as we act. And a world where we do everything we can to restrain climate change barely resembles one where we do nothing. And we won't like that first world, 
but we might not survive in the second. And yet that could be okay because we have acted. You've given us a huge amount to think about. I want to recognize the work of the Spring Creek Project at the Oregon State University. The Spring Creek Project states that their mission is bringing together the practical wisdom of environmental science, the clarity of philosophy, and the transformational power of the written word in the arts to envision and inspire just and joyous relations with the planet and with one another. And there is a project of the Spring Creek program that is sort of based on um, Kathleen Dean's more Earth Wild Music. And their project is called Music to Save the Earth's Songs. The ending part of this program, I want to use a piece from the animal uh, interludes called Dawn Chorus. Again, it's from Earth Wild Beauty. It's read by Laurette Savoy. And to the sound design of Hank Lintfer. And again, that's a production of the Spring Creek Project. Hope you enjoy it. Who among us has not seen the image of the earth from space as the planet turns under the light of the sun and morning advances? Always half-spangled black, half-glistening blue and green, the ball rolls. And mountains and coastlines, seas and continents slowly emerge into the sun. It stirs me, I have to say, to watch satellite video of morning flowing over the earth like a bright tide. I imagine boats full of brass choirs bumping along the advancing edge of the flow, heralding the morning. But in fact, that's almost exactly what has happened every day for how many days? 60 million years. So 21,900,000,000 days. For that many days, there have been birds that stir in the breeze that precedes the sunrise, lift their heads, and begin to sing. <laughs> 